Imagine, if you will, you're in a courtroom and you are the defendant. And you are guilty of a crime, and not just any crime, you're guilty of murder. And all the evidence that has been collected is stacked against you. There's nothing in your favor. It's all against you. The prosecutor has delivered this evidence to the judge, and the judge now, in viewing the evidence, knows beyond a shadow of a doubt you are guilty, and now you are standing before the judge ready for him to reveal the verdict. No matter how strong a defense you have, no matter how many good things you've tried to do after the fact to try to compensate for this egregious error, there is nothing that can be offered to compensate for the crime that you've committed. And now you're before the judge waiting for your fate to be sealed. This is the setting that we find ourselves in in the story of the great romance. God, through Jesus, creates his eternal companions. The Father now has a family, not just the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the perfect divine relationship, but now he has a family, and the family, these children, were, were given so that he could then have relationship through a, an intimacy, through a, a vibrant physical relationship with his son. It says in scripture that Jesus often would walk in the Garden of Eden through the cool of the day, that he would spend time with his, the, his brothers and sisters now, but really his eternal companion as the bride in the Garden of Eden. And, and there was this intimacy unlike anything we could comprehend. The only experience they had was goodness was peace, was joy, was glory. There was no sin, no suffering, nothing that could create any type of pain or struggle. It was eternal bliss. But then the enemy, the, the devil, the serpent showed up and deceived Adam and Eve, and they transgressed against God. They sinned by choosing a different kingdom. They thought that maybe God was holding out from them, that, that instead of giving everything he was to them as he was, that he was holding out, and so they chose to believe a lie, and they sinned. And in that moment of deception, mankind betrays God. They turn their back on all of his goodness and glory for a status in another kingdom. And at that moment, their connection to God is completely severed. What bonded them in intimacy is now destroyed, and mankind seems to be lost to their creator forever, enslaved now to the serpent who beguiled them. But more than just being enslaved, more than just losing the right to be in the kingdom of God, there is something else that happened. What mankind did caused irreparable damage to the kingdom of God as they gave birth to chaos in the kingdom of peace that God created. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, this is what Paul tells the church of Rome about this time when God created the earth, everything was perfect, and man sinned. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. One man, Adam, is responsible for all the sin in all the world. Through him was unleashed this curse. If you dig into the original language a bit, there's more happening than simply that a guy did something wrong, and now everyone is a sinner. We're, we're destined to die one day because of this sin, but there's more than just this simple understanding. 
literally the eternal nature of humanity, the spirit that God put in man that brought us to life and gave us this eternal connection, it died. The part of us connected to God died. The part that could glorify him and would glorify him is no longer in man. The part of us that would reflect his light and his glory in the world, as he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with my glory, reign and have dominion over the earth to advance my kingdom across the face of this globe, that part of us died as, long, as well as the intimate bond and connection we had. And the only influence now, because of this singular moment, this singular sin, was a spiritually dead flesh. Our mind, will, and emotions, our mind and our body now are under a curse rather than under a blessing. This flesh now would crave and desire, our minds would then think about, and our hearts would be motivated to do the opposite of God's will rather than to do God's will because of being under the power of sin and death, the curse of the devil. And we would further mar the image of God that was imbued into the fabric of man as God made us in his image. For we now, in this state, separated from God, pushed out of his kingdom, we would now only reproduce what we were. Adam and Eve were sinners. Therefore, they could only reproduce sinners. No longer reproducing those that were made in the glorified image of God the way God intended. This flesh-dominated being would create others just like it. And this curse of sin, which was death, would be applied to every soul born thereafter. That is why the scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one that is good but God. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glorious standard of God. If we were to pick apart this verse in Romans 5.12, where it says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, that phrase entered into the world literally means it came into being. That sin only existed in one place prior to the fall of man. It existed in the heart of the devil. Pride was found in Satan, and Satan was cast out of the presence of God. And if man hadn't sinned, that's where sin would have stayed, in the enemy. But because we believed the lie and we allowed that lie to manifest into a physical action resulting in sin, we gave birth, we opened a door for sin to enter now into our physical realm. And by entering into the world through the heart of man, the word world there is the world cosmos. Cosmos in the original language literally means an orderly arrangement. Do you believe that creation is an orderly arrangement? If you do any type of scientific study, you, you'll even see, even in public school where they try to remove God from every realm and facet, our world is precisely ordered. Matter of fact, even atheists will argue, we understand that the world is precise. It is ordered to precision. Without this precision, life would not be possible, but yet they still deny the existence of God. They just say, well, we don't know. And until we prove it, we can't know. But even atheists, those that don't even believe in God, believe in an orderly world. This is what God created. It was precisely created so that it would not only sustain life and create life, but it would bring out the best. It would provide the most blissful, amazing life that man could ever um, enjoy. But the moment we brought sin into the world, we gave birth to sin, sin brought something called death. In the original language, the word death is the word thanatos. It means a separation of the soul 
in the body. It is a spiritual separation. But this death curse would not just affect humanity. It would affect all of creation. In Romans, Paul says that creation groans for the day Jesus will come back and restore all things. That this sin didn't just affect humanity. It affected every part of creation. And instead of working towards eternal life, now everything, second law of thermodynamics, is heading towards chaos. It's heading towards destruction. We have created chaos in the kingdom that God designed perfect order. We created disorder in the realm of peace. All the miseries that arise because of sin are a result of this singular action taken by Adam and Eve. The word sin means to miss the mark. So the world we experience now is not the world that God created. It is, it is a shadowed reflection of the world God created. It misses the mark to what God created. Adam sinned and sin brought death and it corrupted God's creative order. And so death passed upon all men. The, the, the phrase pass literally means through, that sin comes through all men. If you've got to think about it like this, it's not just that we're born with a sin nature, it's that that nature is passed from father to son, from mother to daughter, that we give this nature to the ones coming after us because it is a continual process as we are born into a world that is under the curse. We, death passes through one and into the other. The word all is the word the whole of or in the entire part of. It is, there's no one that is exempt from this curse of sin and death. All of us have sinned. All of us have missed the mark. And all of us have passed this curse on to the next generation. Literally, the nature of sin and the guilt of bringing about death into the world is every one of our responsibility. We are responsible for death. It's not Adam is just responsible for death. He was the first. But now we are responsible for death. So like the opening illustration, you could say we are all spiritual murderers. We are all responsible for the death we see in the world. It is our sin that creates it. All of us have an infinite wealth of evidence stacked against us. So now humanity, kicked out of the presence of God and the story dwelling, uh, the dwelling place of the Lord in the Garden of Eden now has to flourish on our own. We have to try to survive on our own apart from God in a sin-cursed world and the survival of humanity rests on our ability to reproduce, the reproductive process. And Adam and Eve, not knowing really what they're doing, just trying to figure life out in the world, they begin to create a life for themselves the best they can, and they begin to have children. It's not long after they leave the Garden of Eden that they begin to reproduce. Now, we don't know how many children Adam and Eve had, but Adam lived to be somewhere around 900-some years old. You can have a lot of kids in 900 years. Matter of fact, he was 130 when his son Seth was born. So it's possible that he had a lot of kids. Imagine if you had one a year, you know, for 130 years. And then as they grow up, they start having kids. You can imagine a lot of, a lot of children going on. Um, that's a lot of food stamps, y'all. I'm just saying. But uh, we don't know how many sisters 
Cain and Abel had, but Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's two sons, the first two children that we're told about in the scripture. It's possible they had daughters before they had a son, but it was significant when Cain was born because he was the first to be born, a first man to be born to Adam and Eve. There could have been others between Adam or Cain and Abel, but we're not told about them. But these are the ones who are significant in the story. And what's significant about the story about Cain and Abel is because it foreshadows, this story is a, a foreshadowing of how Jesus would rescue the bride. He, it's, it's how Jesus would redeem mankind. As mankind is now guilty of sin and death, how Jesus would come through and, and redeem us and save us from this inescapable fate. In Genesis 4, 1 through 7, here's the, the story. It says, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I've produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother named Mabel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. It was time for the harvest. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Will you be accepted if you do what is right? Or you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. What's amazing in this story, what's awesome to see here, and it's telling about the nature of God, is that his, his kids, the, the kids to the father, the sons of God, Adam and Eve, they rebelled. They gave up the kingdom of God for the kingdom of the enemy. They had to leave the Garden of Eden, and now they've had children and who are under this curse of sin. And you would think that in a situation like that, if your kids rebelled against you, trying to help your enemy overthrow you, that you would just write them off altogether. But here you see God still pursuing his, his children. You still see the groom pursuing the bride. That, that he's not just abandoning them and leaving them to their fate. He's still intimately aware and active in the pursuit of their heart. He had opportunity to punish them when they sinned, but rather than punishment and having immediate consequences, swift and strong as they deserved, he shows grace. He covers their shame by giving them clothes, knowing one day that the effects of their decision would catch up with them. It would be unavoidable. But God loved them, had compassion on them in their current condition, and he set a plan in place. If you read Genesis chapter 3, he set a plan in place to conquer the devil once and for all and rescue his children. So here in the story of Cain and Abel, we see this continual process of trying to appease God. God had to kill an animal to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And here we see Cain and Abel continuing that tradition of sacrifice, offering God an offering to appease him for the wrongs that they had done. It was a process God initiated when he covered the sins of Adam and Eve. But in this story, God accepts the sacrifice of Abel, but he does not accept the sacrifice of Cain. And if you had siblings, it, you know that there's automatically a sibling rivalry between younger and older, right? And so if the younger gets favored over the older, that's a problem. You know, if the older gets favored over the younger, that's a problem. You know, it, everyone wants to be equal. And this is what happens in this story. So you might ask, why? 
Why did God favor Abel, the younger, over the older? And there have been many reasons that have been given to explain it. Some say, well, Abel gave a blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and so God uh, required a blood sacrifice to cover sin, and so that's why he accepted Abel, and, and there's probably some merit to that. Others will say that, well, Abel gave his first and his best, and Cain didn't, and so you know, the, you know, that's why God accepted Abel over Cain, and there's merit to that, and I would agree with that as well. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it tells us specifically why God accepted Abel over Cain. In Hebrews 11, 4, it says, it was by faith, somebody say by faith. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. So it was faith that motivated the sacrifice. Abel was still a sinner like everyone else. He had the curse of sin and death, but because of his faith, God counted his sacrifice, his offering for righteousness. Why did he reject Cain's? Because Cain's wasn't of faith. Cain didn't have the motivation of his heart be faith and trust in the goodness of God and his promises to one day break this power of sin and death by sending a Messiah. He probably didn't even believe God at all. And you can see this as evident in this story, in his life. In Psalm 51, 16 and 17, the, David writes this about the nature of God. He says, God says, you don't desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. We think about all these rules and regulations in the law and people of faith, it's easy to become religious thinking I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. But it's to appease God to make the, him not mad at you anymore rather than out of faith and love for God that you serve him and honor him with your life. And when something's not of faith, that it can't be accepted. Verse 17, David says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. The reason why Abel was accepted and Cain wasn't is because Abel's heart cried out for the Lord. Cain's didn't. And Cain was rejected not because God preferred Abel over Cain, but because Cain's offering was not a satisfactory offering. There was no faith or love behind it. It was based on religious appeasement, really, to get God off his back. And this is so powerful for you and I to take a minute and really think about this in our lives. This reflects the reality of two different attitudes in the Christian life, two different attitudes that also reflect two different covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, or the Old Testament, gave all these religious instructions about sacrifices, about rituals, and about all the do's and don'ts in order to be a good person, ceremonies, rules, and regulations. But yet we know in the New Testament that even among all of those rules and regulations, they were not sufficient to handle the problem of sin in our lives. They were not sufficient to cover us because those sacrifices had to be repeated year after year after year. It was a continual process because you can never get good enough through your works, through your religious adherence. The old law, the Old Testament, was not sufficient to handle the spiritual weight of sin. And the tendency for people in our day, even those that attend church regularly, is to get into this religious habit of duty that this is just what I do because this is what God expects of me and your heart is completely absent to anything that you do. 
And so it's an unacceptable sacrifice. Many of us do this today. We go to church, we give in the bucket, we do good deeds, and it's to get God off our backs so we can keep living how we want, self-centered and self-focused, rather than truly being broken over our sin and giving God our heart in repentance. You see, there was a new covenant that would come that would be offered and its sacrifice would be sufficient to cover sin and break the power of sin and death. It is the sacrifice of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. And it was not only sufficient to cover sin once and for all, to be the sufficient sacrifice, the sufficient payment for our sin, but it is the newer covenant that God prefers over the older covenant. It represents the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was offering religious duty. Abel was offering his heart. The old covenant led us into religious duty. The new covenant leads us into a new heart. God prophesied in Jeremiah that one day he would give us a new heart and he'd write his laws on our heart because God is after our hearts. What I love about this story is that even though Cain was a sinner, just like all of us, and even though his offering was not accepted, he was a religious guy that his heart was just not into anything that he was doing for the Lord, God still wanted to accept him. God still loved him passionately and was pursuing his heart. And he has this conversation with Cain, and he invites Cain to rise up to the place of acceptance by encouraging him to check his heart, check his attitude, repent, and then do well. To live from faith and not religious obligation. Look at Genesis chapter 4, 6, and 7. This is the conversation God has with Cain. He says, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. He's saying, I'm not withholding anything from you because I don't love you. I'm withholding it from you because you're not loving me. He's like, if you just love me, I'll accept you just as I accepted Abel. But if you refuse to do what's right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. The phrase do well here is literally translated to do good. If you do good, if you do what's right, and what's ex- it'll be accepted. The word accepted means elevated or exalted. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel because God exalted him and elevated him in his sacrifice, and Cain didn't get the same. He didn't get the same platitudes. He didn't get the same blessing from the Lord. But God is telling Cain, if you do what your brother did, love me from your heart, I'm going to elevate you too. I'm going to exalt you because that's what I want to do. God wants to exalt you. God wants to build you up. He wants to draw you into his heart. He wants to bless your life. But what's in the way between the blessing and the cursing is your heart. And Cain makes a different decision. Rather than pursuing God's heart and giving God his heart, Cain falls prey to the warning of God because of the jealousy that was rooted deep within him. And that jealousy opened the door for sin, and Satan literally gets a hold of him. And as that door of sin is opened, and Satan begins to lead his life and gain control over him, the enemy compels him to engage in an egregious act. In Genesis 4.8, it says, One day Cain suggested to his brother, Let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Sin is crouching at the door. It's ready and eager to control us. The moment we open that opportunity to the enemy. 
And sin was allowed to rise up in Cain's heart, just like God said, and exerted control over him like a slave master and led him to do the unthinkable. The first murder in all of history happens here at the beginning of the creation story. The first murder is released into the world, and this changes the world forever because after this point, murder begins to reoccur and reoccur and reoccur. One moment unleashes a ripple effect to the end of time. See, dying of old age came by Adam, but murder came by Cain. In James 3.16, says, Forever there is jealousy and selfish ambition. There you'll find disorder and evil of every kind. The reason why the Bible says to guard our hearts for it determines the course of your life is because what attitudes we allow to lead and guide our hearts will be the very thing that produces work and, and uh, uh, sin in our lives. We can either produce good works for God that He can redeem and use to restore and encourage, or we can allow sin to produce works in our lives and create unimaginable chaos and devastation. Each of us in this room here today, because of the sin nature that we wrestle with, we are capable of the worst of actions. You look at the shooters on television, you look at the terrorists, you look at Hitler and all of these people, and they're no different than we are. They're not, they weren't born into a different existence. The only difference between them and us might very well be a relationship with Jesus Christ. Who you give your heart to. We are all capable of the worst actions based on the sin that lurks in the depths of us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Our hearts are desperately wicked. No one knows how really wicked they are. They're so deceitful, we're deceived into thinking we're not even that wicked. You ask and the average person on the, the side of the road, do you believe you're a good person? And they'll say what? Yes. I've never asked a person that question that didn't think they were a good person. Even if they've done some wrong things, they still think they're a good person. Why? Because we're deceived by our very own hearts. There's nothing good in us. He commits murder. And then God comes to him again. Genesis chapter 4, 9 through 10. And the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? It's not because he didn't know. He knew. He was asking Cain because he was trying to draw him to repentance, give him an opportunity to repent of his sins. But Abel or Cain says, I don't know. He lies to the Lord. Cain responded, am I my brother's guardian? Verse 10, it says, but the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What have you done, Cain? I hear the agony from the blood of your brother. It's calling out to me, and it's calling out for vengeance because of this egregious crime against humanity against your own flesh and blood did you know church did you know beloved that innocent blood matters to god every drop of those created in his image matters to the lord life is in the blood and when you shed innocent blood there's a deep spiritual significance to this in psalm 106 verse 38 talking about the nation of israel it says they shed innocent blood even the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed unto idols of canaan and the land was polluted with blood did you know that the death of the innocent pollutes the land it curses the very ground that you walk on because of the spiritual significance to the death of the innocent it opens up cursing and demonic infestation to the land at which you walk because the intentional death of the innocent is always murder. Now, think of this. 
Who are the most innocent among us? And how many murders do we approve of every day in this nation? And how polluted is our land? All innocent blood cries out to the Lord. And it cries out to him for vengeance and justice. Rights must be made for the wrongs that are done in the world. Atonement must be made for sin. It calls on God to act, and the required action for the cleansing of the land is the death of the one that perpetrated the crime, which is why we are all cursed with death, and one day we will die because we're all guilty. Until the perpetrator is killed or dies, the defilement and the curse continues to plague the land. When Jesus approached Adam in the garden, and he asked Adam, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? This is after they sinned. He's in the cool of the day. They're hiding. They made fig leaves for themselves because they're trying to hide their shame. God approaches Adam and says, Adam, where are you? And Adam responds, he's like, I hid from you because I was naked. And he says, who told you you were naked? And Adam's conversation with God was different than Cain's. God was speaking to Adam. It's like, what happened to you? You're not like I created you. What, like Who told you you were naked? You have a, an identity now that's not what I gave you. In the moment that Adam sinned, they lost this identity as being a glorified son and, or daughter of God, and, and it changed how they viewed themselves and viewed the world, and it was a matter of identity. But when God goes to Cain and he says, What have you done? It's not because God didn't know. It's because the crime that he committed was the most vile and wicked action Cain could have made against God and his very own family. And because of the nature of sin, God reveals that he is not just to live under the curse that his father unleashed through his sin, but now even further curses are unleashed over the ground because of this crime that he committed. In Genesis 4, 11 through 14, God says, now you're cursed and banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield crops for you, no matter how hard you work. Adam, he said the ground wouldn't yield crops as easily as it would have before. He's going to struggle by the sweat of his brow to provide a living. Now, Cain, you don't even get crops. It's cursed. No blessing. From now on, you'll be homeless, a wanderer on the earth. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, but they still got to live around the garden. Now Cain can't even be anywhere near the dwelling. And Cain replies to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You've banished me from the land and from your presence. I can't even see where you are now. I, I, have, I don't even have a visual of where you are. I, I'll be a lost completely disconnected from you if you do this. I'll be a homeless wanderer, and anyone that finds me will want to kill me. Cain was right to be afraid because he knew there was sacrifice needed to cover his sin, and, and a sacrifice might cover his relationship between he and God, but that sacrifice would not be sufficient to cover the injustice done to his fellow man. He might be able to offer a ram or a bull to appease God's wrath for a time, but it would not satisfy the vengeance in the heart of every one of his family members because of what he had done. So he pleads to God for mercy, and God in his mercy grants mercy to Cain. Genesis 4, 15 and 16, the Lord replies, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east 
of Eden. The word nav means wandering. The judge who is facing the defendant rather than punishment gives him mercy. This righteous judge we have is a judge of great mercy because he's also a God of great love. What I love about this passage is that God puts his mark on Cain. Did you know that Jesus was the first tattoo artist? Did you realize that? You know, people say, well, are tattoos in the Bible? Jesus put a tattoo on Cain. In Revelation, Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh. So, you know, there, if you like tattoos, there's a verse. Go ahead. I have tattoos. I will never put one on me because I don't have enough attention span to enjoy them for a long period of time. And I'm afraid when I get old that it's not going to look the same as when I first get it. So, you know, the tattoos aren't for me, but if you like them, go ahead. But God puts his mark on Cain and protects him from judgment from anyone else. To the, and he goes off to this land of wandering. You and I have inherited this state from Cain, this wandering. Mankind, if you think about the history of the world, we started in the Middle East area when God created, but we have been covering the globe ever since. We've been traveling to find new lands, new places. We've been wandering around the globe ever since this early creation because something inside of us is trying to find that next thing that will satisfy, that will fulfill us. There's, there's a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill, and we are trying to find every place, every experience, every realm in this world to fill that place that only God can fill. We've been searching through adventures, through treasure hunting, through, through all of these things, through all the great people of history and, and time that we study about and we think about all the things that they accomplished. It's really an effort to discover the one thing that can only truly satisfy. We've been cursed to live in a land of wandering. As sinners, we are guilty of the death of the innocent because it was our sin that brought about the curse that caused every murder every bit of pain, every struggle. Think about this. In the recent history, there are school shootings. There's shootings at the church. We have all these different crimes. Do you know that people don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to go commit mass murder. It starts as a moment in their life. It starts as a difficulty in home. It starts as an abuse. And there could be a moment where a believer has a bad day acts in the flesh and doesn't drive courteously like they should or maybe you send out a, a tweet on social media you know saying something mean to somebody at school or something happens and you're not acting as a representative of the Lord but you act in your flesh and that one event though maybe small becomes the first catalyst that begins a mindset in somebody that creates a victim mentality that then begins to spiral out over years and years and years where they believe no one likes me, everyone hates me to the point that they get to that place that says enough is enough, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Nobody wakes up and commits crime like that just on a whim. It begins as a seed that grows out over time and you and I we don't take a moment to reflect on what our actions actually do. The depth of the ripple effect that our sin has in society. We're guilty of every sin. Every, every person we vote for that enacts legislation that leads our nation further and further into godlessness. We are responsible for all the sin and suffering we see in the world. 
First Chronicles 28, 9 says, For the Lord sees every heart. He knows every plan and thought. If we seek him, we will find him. But if we forsake him like Cain, he will reject us forever. Nothing escapes the penetrating gaze of God. Nothing. And all of us stand before him right now, just as Cain did, completely guilty. The righteous judge has all the evidence against us. It is stacked against us. If he were to pass a verdict that we would deserve the ultimate penalty, the penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death because death is what we cause because we're sinners. But praise be the Lord that just as God made provision for Adam and Eve and God made provision for Cain and he placed his mark upon Cain so that even though he was guilty, he would not be harmed, he would be protected in this illustration that we began with as us standing before the judge, recognizing that Jesus is that judge, we have to continue the illustration out in the light of this information that Jesus is behanded the, the evidence against you. He's the judge. He's reading everything that, that he sees, all your crimes, all the evidence, and he's about to issue the verdict against you, and you're ready, waiting to receive the guilty verdict, knowing it's coming, knowing that at any moment your life will be over because of what you've done. And in this scene, the judge leaves his chair, comes around to the courtroom, comes down right before you face to face. He takes the papers of the judgment against you and he writes not guilty on your paper. And then he turns to the bailiff and says, Bailiff, I will take the punishment for this criminal. I will be responsible for his crimes. And then the bailiff takes the judge, walks him to the execution chamber, and he dies for your crimes. This is what God has done for us. This is what Jesus has done to free us. Hebrews 12, 24 says, You've come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, but Jesus died so that his blood could cry out for forgiveness. This is what our God, our bridegroom, our Lord and Savior has done for us. He left his place of honor in heaven. He took upon our sins upon himself. He gave his life on the cross. The innocent became guilty, so the guilty could now become innocent. The blood of Abel calls out for vengeance, but the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. And we see this in the very moments of the last moments of Christ on the cross in Luke 23, 34, where Jesus cries out what? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we believe on Christ, when we repent of our sins, recognizing, yes, God, I'm guilty. I deserve death. I'm responsible for the pain and suffering in the world. I see how my life does not measure up to the mark of your perfection. And we believe on Christ. We say, but I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior we leave the condemnation of the old covenant that says you're not good enough, you'll never be good enough no matter what you do, you're still guilty of your sins, and we enter into the new covenant that says you are clean and you are clear and made brand new. Through faith like Abel, he gives us forgiveness. And mercy like Cain. 
And God also marks us to protect us from any further accusation of the enemy. Ephesians 1.13, it says, In whom ye trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 4.13 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Beloved, God has put his mark on you. And his mark cries out for forgiveness. His mark cries out for redemption. His mark declares you are not guilty. The record of Jesus reveals not guilty. So what would compel this righteous judge who has all the evidence against you? What would motivate him to offer Cain mercy in the midst of all the evidence against him? I meant the screams of the blood of Abel crying out for vengeance. What would compel the righteous judge to come off the judge's bench and pronounce you not guilty and take your place? Romans 5.8 says this, God commendeth his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What compelled the father to redeem his children, what compelled the husband to give his life for his bride, what compels the judge to take the place of the criminals is his love. In the story of Cain and Abel, we see the foreshadow of God's redemptive plan not to chain us to the law of condemnation, but to free us through faith in Christ's ultimate sacrifice. The only true innocent life, Jesus Christ, is the only sacrifice that can satisfy the cries of our defiled land, to satisfy the cries for justice so that God can offer us mercy. When you deserve death, our glorious, righteous judge gave us life. Why? Because he loves you. You are his beloved. He knew you before you were born. He anticipated your first breath. He's watched you every day of your life. He knows how many hairs are numbered on your head. Every cry you make, he catches your tears in his bottle. He is intimately interested in you. He is engaged in your life. Even in the seasons, you don't care or you neglect him. The father is still pursuing his children. The groom is still pursuing the heart of his bride. And God is giving you the same opportunity he gave Cain today, that if you would humble yourself, See your need for Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you would give him your heart. Start living by faith rather than out of religious duty. God will accept you and he will elevate you and bless you and exalt you in his eyes because his great desire is to be glorified in his people. But if you choose to reject him, you make the choice to be rejected. God will not force himself on you, but it's up to you to decide, will I believe, will I trust, and will I follow Christ, or will I walk away? I thank the Lord that he is a, not just a righteous judge, but that he's filled with unfailing love and mercy. There will be a day where he judges sin, but for those who know Christ, to have a relationship with God, we will walk past the judge's booth and into the arms of our glorious Heavenly Father who's passionate about redemption, who's passionate about his beloved.
Let's bow for prayer as we go into a time of prayer and response. As the music begins to play, I just want to encourage you here for a moment to think about your heart. Think about your life. Have you been living like Abel and living from faith because of a passionate love for the Lord? Or have you been living like Cain, just going through the motions to get God off your back? Hoping one day that you did enough good to get in the pearly gates. Beloved, your bridegroom, God, has given a promise to all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said, if you trust in me, you repent of your sins and you turn to God, you will be born again. That means you'll become altogether new as the Spirit of God will come live inside of you. That part of you that died when Adam sinned will come alive again. You'll be given a connection to the Father. You'll have a relationship with your true Father. You'll be able to discover the purpose for which you were created and find the peace you've been longing for. You'll receive a taste of a small taste of what is to come in eternity when we get to experience the fullness of God for all eternity, forever and forever. Beloved, Jesus took your place. So then rather than condemnation and judgment, you could endure and enjoy His amazing, wonderful love. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, or maybe you realize that your heart has been far from God and you need to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you've done it before. Maybe you've grown up in church. You've been baptized. You've prayed prayers. You've had emotional experiences, but you look at your life and honestly, you're like, you know what? I've been more like Cain than I have been Abel. And I need to give my life to Jesus. If that's you here today, with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, if you just slip your hand up, I want to pray for you. Just by lifting your hand up, you're saying, Pastor Joey, that's me. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to do it for real. I want to live from faith. I recognize how much God loves me, and that makes me want to give my all to Him. Just slip your hand up and I'll pray for you. I won't call you out. I won't embarrass you. Amen. Well, Lord, I pray for your church here. I pray, God, that everyone here by their own testimony has a relationship with you. I pray, God, you give us fresh revelation of your sacrifice today, of what you really went through for us how desperate our need was for you, how there was no chance we were getting out if it was only by your sacrifice that we could be saved. And how great is your love for us. So Holy Spirit, I just pray in this moment for each person here, God, that we would have fresh revelation, that our hearts would get ignited with the fire of your Holy Spirit, that the coldness and apathy that we've lived in our lives would be broken off, God, and we would be just lit and motivated, God, with ambition and zeal and excitement to chase after you, to pursue your presence and to tell people about you, to be your witnesses, God. 
that we would walk in your spirit, that your power could be made manifest in our lives. God, as we go into a time of response, Lord, I pray that you would release your presence from heaven, your power would come, power for healing, words of encouragement through your prophetic gifts. And as we spend some time in prayer, minister to us now in Jesus' name.